Good to be with you. Good. <laughs> Trust that you've brought a Bible. If not, feel free to take a gander at the screen and follow along with us. And if you need a Bible, let us know. And we, we'd love to help you get a Bible. So once you get that Bible, now I'm not asking you to get in your car and drive to the Christian bookstore right now because they're closed, but once you have a Bible in your hands or you're ready to look at the screen, uh, would you go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews? Now, how many of you are, you know, I see a lot of leather Bibles, I see, a lot, I see some paperbacks. Uh, how many of you use, are using a device, some sort of iPhone, iPad? Okay. Everybody know how to use airplane mode? If you know how to use airplane mode and you are not on call, go ahead and put it on airplane mode because if you're anything like me, the minute you get a message, even if you don't read it, it's got your attention and we want our attention to be on the word of God. We want it to be on, on him and not on anything else. So thank God. Let's turn to Hebrews. Last week we talked about Abraham from the book of Romans talking about how he hoped against hope. And we're just going to lay the groundwork for a couple of things here as we think about our good friend Abraham, who is not always Abraham. But just to review and to recap, you guys remember that Abram, when he was called, when God spoke to him, first spoke to him about him being the father of many nations, he was about 75 years old. Now, I don't know about many of you, but I don't think, when I think about my 75th year, I don't think of me wanting, or I guess if he's 75, it's his 76th year. I don't think of me wanting to leave everything I've ever worked for, everything I've ever owned, and just start setting out, going on a wild adventure. That sounds like something you do when you're like 19. 75, God says, leave your father. Leave your father's people, leave this place, and go out. We always talk about Abraham being a, a friend of God. But it would seem that that friendship really developed mostly after Abram obeyed God and set out. You don't see a lot of the scripture talk about his relationship with God before then. I'm sure he had one. But when we see God speaking to Abram, it's mostly from this moment, leave and get out of town and go where I'm going to send you. Not quite sure why God picked Abram. The scripture doesn't tell us, why'd you pick Abram? But there's something about a man who's this close to extinction, this close. 75, he and his wife have never had kids. His line is about to end. It may not be a big deal now, but in that day and age, that's a big deal. You're about, to, your line, your, your name, your legacy, it's about over. It ends with you, it dies with you. And God picks that man. I, that may have had something to do with why he picked Abram. And he picked a man who's this close to extinction, a woman who's never been able to have kids. How many women in the Bible who are never able to have kids? Now, we can think of two major ones. Well, three major ones. You think of, you think of uh, Sarah. You think of Hannah. You think of Elizabeth. God is so often using people who have given up on everything else. Everybody else has given up on them. God's using these people to show, look what I can do. Isn't that amazing? So God picks a man inches from extinction. Technically, he's already given up. And God says, I'm going to make you great. And one of the great things about that is that Abraham, Abram at the time, is 75 when he gets that word from the Lord. He's about 100 when he has Isaac. About a hundred when he and Sarah have a baby. Now, he had a baby with one of his servant girls. But when he and Sarah had the promised child, it's been 25 years. That's amazing. Because what's really amazing is what we talked about last week in Romans, where it says, when he looked at his body as good as dead, he looked at Sarah's body and the deadness of her womb, and it says, with respect to the promises of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in the faith, giving glory to God. Many of us, when you think about it naturally, now I'm going to put that preface on it when we think about it naturally. When you think about it naturally, you would assume that the more years that pass, the more time that goes by between you not having a kid and you having a kid at 75 with a wife that's never been able to have kids, that the more years that pass, the weaker you get. Because that's kind of the way it is with most of us. 
It's the way it's been. I'm not going to say it's the way it is. But it's the way it's been with a lot of us. The more we have to wait, the more you feel like giving up. What grabs me about it so much is that it says Abraham grew strong. Grew. Does anybody, anybody catch the significance of the word grew? Continually, gradually, he got stronger the more time got on until the point where he was fully persuaded, the scripture says, fully persuaded that God was going to do this. 25 years. 25 years. Three days seems like a lot to us, doesn't it? How big is it to Abram? You think about it in Hebrews 11. We'll read it in a minute, but I'll just skip ahead for a second. How big is it that it says Abram could have lived in the cities with nice houses and established water wells and and other people that you can work with? He could have lived in a nice city. He could have afforded a nice house. He could have had a good servants. He could have had a little small army. He did have a small army. He could have had his little small army living in nice places. But it says he chose rather to live in tents. Think about it. A rich guy. Abraham, the Bible says God made him very rich in cattle and in, in, in all these things. God made him a rich man. But think about a rich man choosing rather to live in a tent. Can you imagine Bill Gates living in a tent? Can you imagine, I mean, even the rich folks in town choosing to live in a shack or a tent? Maybe, maybe a little, little shack with a heater so they'd survive in the winter. Can you imagine that? I can't. But Abraham did. He'd rather live in a tent in the land that God gave him than in the cities where that's not my land. He'd rather stay where he was called. He'd rather stay where God placed him, even knowing that he probably wouldn't see the land God was promising. He probably wouldn't see the fulfillment of all it should be in his lifetime, but he didn't want to leave the place that God gave him. So it says, by faith, he chose rather to live in tents on his land than live somewhere with wicked people in nice cities. This is the kind of man we're talking about, but he's a man just like you and me. When I say you and me, if you're a woman, I'm saying he's a human like you and me. He had the same sort of deals, the same sort of issues. And we see that when he gives in to his wife and he says, okay, I'll have a kid with this girl, with this servant of yours. So is trying to make what God said to him happen, which is something we do all the time. We, we hear what God tells us. We hear what God has promised us. And when it doesn't seem to be happening, we go into panic mode. See, I've been blessed to pastor in this area for nine years and live in this area for most of my life. No, the, only, the only downside to that is that you get lost a lot, or at least I do. I don't anymore. There's GPS and all of that. But I'll tell you why I get lost. Because you go visit people out in the country and you go to their houses and they say, oh, we're going to have supper. Oh, we're going we're gonna to have you over. Why don't you come over to our place? And then they give you these directions based on, on your third left, there's, a, there's, this, there's an oil well there. And it's, it's, there's lots of oil wells, but this one's different. It's got a little bit of rust on it. Okay, turn left there and there'll be, a, there'll be a, a, a small horse that's just wandering around. When you see that small horse, answer his riddles and and he'll tell you, he'll send you on a quest, and then you go, I mean, so the directions are crazy, and I, there's, I can't tell you how many times somebody's given me directions to their house, and they say, when you see this, turn left, and I'm feeling good about that when I set out, but the more time that passes, the more I say, I've missed it, I've missed it, I've missed it, I start to feel like I'm going to panic, then what do you do? You turn around. And now you're saying, well, was it left or was it right? Well, I'm going the other way. And, and, and a lot of times, I don't know how many times it's happened where, where you find out if I just kept going five more minutes, I would have hit the turn. I would have hit that place. But I, I started feeling nervous that, I don't know, I think I'm going to miss it. I think I already missed it. Why? Because we, we like assurances. If you told me every turn that was going to happen, everything I was going to see, I'd know where I was. But a lot of times it's like, go this, go this distance I can't tell you how many miles or kilometers it's going to be, but you know, you'll, you'll know it, you'll see this. And, and you get to a certain point where you start to panic. And in life, we have these panic moments where we're trusting God, we're trusting God, and then we say, hang on, have I missed it? 
And it's so many times that that's where we find our opportunities for an Ishmael. It's funny, the devil does not just use obstacles, he uses opportunities. We'd love it if all it was was obstacles, because we go, if it's an obstacle, it's bad. If it's an opportunity, it's good. But you know, Satan knows how to open doors too. And often, the, the, the thing that's going to trip us up the most is an opportunity that's not from God. And we see it, and we're feeling like panicking. We're feeling like, you know, I've been standing in faith. I've been believing. I've been trusting God. Maybe it's time to do this. Maybe I'm just being too stubborn. And your opportunity to have Ishmael comes up. And you say, well, you know, maybe I was just being a little extreme. Maybe I was just thinking too, I, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do this because if God promised it, it doesn't seem to be happening through Sarah, so maybe I need to make something happen. And it's then that we cause our own issues. Thank God that we serve a God who doesn't just quit on you when you make a dumb move. Amen. He doesn't quit on you. And you know, what's so wonderful to me, and you, you might disagree, but I, one of the most wonderful things about that whole story about Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, and Sarah, and Hagar, one of the most wonderful things to me is that God still blessed Ishmael. God still blessed him. Did this cause Abram trouble? Yeah, it caused him trouble. It caused him trouble in his home. It caused him trouble in his family. But God still honored his covenant with Abraham so that he blessed Ishmael. That's the kind of God we serve. But don't use that to go and say, okay, I'm going to do what I want. God will bless it anyways. Don't settle for second best when you can have the will of God. Now, here's what it says in Hebrews. We're going to go ahead into Hebrews chapter 10. As we've said so many times before, when you start getting to the second half of the New Testament, you're starting to get into some different times. You may notice that the tone and the language changes. It's no longer just the elementary things. It starts to move to some deeper stuff. And it also um, seems to be encouraging a group of people that feel like they're going to give up. In Hebrews, 1 and 2 Peter, 1 and 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 Thessalonians even. You start Titus, Philemon. You start seeing people that are under a weight. James, Jude, James talks about it. I mean, you see these guys under the weight of the world persecuting them. And you don't see a group of people writing to them and saying, I know it's tough, but what you gonna do? You see the the writers encouraging them. Come on, this is what you're built for. Peter says, you've got gold on the inside of you. All this fire is going to do is prove what's really on you, prove what's really in you. It may seem like it's tough, but everything that God's put in you cannot be destroyed by what they throw at you. In fact, it'll be proven by what they're throwing at you. In Hebrews, you find a group of people who've had their stuff taken away. By the name, you know that they are Hebrew. They're, they're Jewish people. Seems to imply later on at the, towards the end of the book that these guys got kicked out of their families. Kicked out. I mean, you think about it. We've talked about this before, but you think about what it would be like if your whole culture, he, I mean, every, your nation, your homeland, which is so sacred to them, that, all, that you've been oppressed For hundreds of years, you've been oppressed, whether it be Greeks, whether it be Romans, you've been oppressed by somebody. It's been a while since you've been free. And the Romans are ruling over you right now. So all you've got is each other. You've got your own Jewish family and your Jewish culture and your religion. And all of these things are intertwined. And that's what you've got. And then somebody comes around and tells you the Messiah has come. And it's time that we believe in him. A new covenant has been established. We, we, we've, we've got a new and living way to know the Father. This is, this is Jesus who you crucified but was risen from the dead. Now he lives. He's offering you forgiveness. He's offering you a home. He's offering you a family. But by believing in Jesus, you're having to choose to give up everything you've ever identified with. Because your family tells you if you turn to that new cult... If you turn to the way or whatever they're calling themselves, you're not part of our family anymore. And all your neighbors and the people you work for and the people you work with don't want to have anything to do with you. So that's why at the end of Hebrews, 
It says, we have to be willing to go outside the camp because Jesus bore our sin outside the camp for us. So let us go outside the camp and meet him there. And you leave everybody that you love and care for, they don't want to have anything to do with you because now you're weird. But he says, be willing to leave the camp because when you step out the camp, yeah, you're leaving everything. But you know who you're going to find outside the camp? You're going to find Jesus waiting for you. And he's worth it all. This is, this is the encouragement that they're given. But in Hebrews chapter 10, there are some that feel like they're going to give up. And here's what he says to them. Hebrews chapter 10, of course, is the chapter that tells them, you have a new living way, therefore let's enter into the very throne room of God. Let's draw near by his blood. Let's go. Let's not hold back. He's let you into his presence. Let's enter with confidence. Let's draw near with confidence. Then he goes on and he says this in verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, what does that mean? It means you believed in Jesus. After being enlightened, Jesus, the light of the world, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. That sounds tough, doesn't it? A great conflict of sufferings. You, were, you, you went through a bunch of stuff, you know? I mean, we don't often work that into our witnessing routine. <laughs> Sign up. And one of the first things you'll encounter is a great conflict of sufferings. Now, that's not part of the pitch, right? But this is what happened. The moment they believed, they were faced with stuff thrown at them. Maybe you've experienced this. Now, we know greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. There's nothing thrown against you that God inside of you is not bigger than. But it wasn't easy street the moment they got born again. It wasn't clouds and rainbows and lollipops. It was tough. But it was worth it. Here's what it says. You've endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. Have you noticed, have you paid attention at the way the culture's moving? Have you paid attention to the fact that just believing the Bible now makes you seem like a bad person? You see, we always like to pretend that people went to their martyrdom, they went to their death, and everybody said, what wonderful people, why are we killing them? I don't know, it must be our crazy ruler. Oh, that they could live. And they went, and there's halos over their heads, and they walked like this, and everybody said, what beautiful people, let us join them. No, they were charged with atheism. They were charged with arson. They were accused of being hateful. They were accused of incest. They were accused of cannibalism. We would like to die for Jesus if everybody knows the story. And they know you're a good guy. And they'll celebrate you the moment you die. But the truth is, these people that died were falsely accused. They were treated as hateful. They were treated as negative to society. Troublemakers. So when it says this, that they were made a public spectacle, that doesn't sound fun to me. Through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who are so treated. That's amazing to me. Not, he says, some of you they picked out of a crowd. Some of you they picked on. They made you publicly a spectacle. And the, the rest of you that weren't being picked on, you went and stood next to the ones that were. That's something we need more of today, isn't it? People that will stand by those that are being reproached, stand by those that are being slandered and said, These, we're, we stand as one. And the human intuition is to get away. When you see somebody's got their sights on someone else, give them some space. You know, you know leave room so that, that that shrapnel doesn't hit you as well. But here it says, you became sharers with those who were so treated. Praise the Lord. What a happy, what a happy sermon so far. Huh? For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. These people are either insane or very full of faith. And they accepted joyfully. Go ahead and take my land. Doesn't matter. You can't take what matters. Then it says this. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. 
How did this little paragraph start? Started by him saying, remember the former days where all this happened. Why does he have to say that? Because they're still dealing with stuff. And, you know, when it first starts, you go, this has got a couple days, a couple weeks max, and we'll be through it. They're still dealing with it. (laughs) He says, remember when it started, how strong you were. Remember how you endured. He said, don't throw away your confidence. Why? It has a great reward. And they're like, you told me about the reward three years ago. We're still dealing with this stuff. When's the reward coming? He says, your confidence has great reward. What does confidence mean? I mean, think about it. Confidence isn't just being confident in yourself. Confidence, even the English word confidence. Think about what the English word means. Confidence, coming from the Latin for with faith. Confidence. Not confidence in them, but confidence in Jesus. He's he's not left us. He hasn't forsaken us. Look at this. Don't throw away your confidence. It has a great reward. How many of you need to hear that this morning where God is saying to you, you may have been standing for a while. Stop feeling. Stop entertaining thoughts of taking an Ishmael route. Stop entertaining thoughts of backing up. Stop entertaining thoughts of quieting down. Don't throw away your confidence. That's where the reward is. He says in verse 36, Wouldn't it be a shame, guys? Wouldn't it be a shame to run most of the marathon and when you've got one kilometer left for you to give up because it's too hard? Isn't that the worst feeling? I mean, I know there's a ton of marathon runners in the crowd today. (laughs) Wouldn't that be the worst feeling? You ran all that way. The prize is right there. You're in the lead. But does anybody here... Is anybody under the impression that the last kilometer is the easiest kilometer? Your second win came a while ago. (laughs) By the time you get to the last kilometer, you're pure, it's willpower. Now, thank God we know willpower is not enough. We rely on the grace of God. And he says, those that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. The Hebrew says to exchange their strength. They will run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not grow faint. They will mount up with wings like eagles. Look at this. He says there's a great reward in staying. He says, for you have need of endurance. No kidding. So that when you've done the will of God, What's the end of the sentence? When you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The key being endurance. You, of course, know elsewhere in the same same book it says that one of the keys is you will reap a harvest if you don't faint. If you don't faint, if you don't give up. Sorry, that's from a different book. But what also in this book it says, be imitators of those who through faith and patience... Inherit the promises of God. Faith is one thing. Patience is another. And they go together, hand in hand. Because you can't have real patience without having real faith. And real faith isn't real faith if there's no patience attached. I mean, if, in order for your faith to be real, it has to happen in 30 seconds. That's 30 seconds away from just being sight. You know what I mean? And Abraham set out not knowing where he was going until he reached half a, you know, 500 meters down the road. And then God said, okay, I just wanted to see if you'd start the journey. Now here's a map. No, he had to keep walking. Just keep walking, not knowing where you're going, getting instructions along the way. It says you will receive, if you've, when you've done the will of God and you endure, you'll receive what's promised. Isn't that wonderful? For yet in a very little while, I love that word, that phrase, Very little while. He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. You see these two things are tied together. The first verse says he's not delaying. He's coming through. He's going to fulfill his promises. He's going to back back you up on this. But in the meantime, in that little while that we're waiting... My righteous one will live by faith. 
won't just have spurts of faith, won't just have sparkles of faith, won't just have moments of faith, will live by faith. That means every breath, every thought, every decision, every moment, every time you wake up, when you go to sleep, your dependency is on him, knowing that he has never failed you and he never will, that his word has never once been broken. My righteous one will live by that faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Unless you think that you're going to shrink back, he says this. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. We are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. I love that. Do you know he doesn't say, he doesn't say we're not those who shrink back. He doesn't say we're not like those who shrink back. He says, we're not of those who shrink back. What does that mean? What's that talking about? To you, that might not be a big deal. But to the people that are reading it, that means when you say you're of something, that's your tribe, that's your family, that's your heritage, that's who you are. So much of who they were was defined by where they came from, who they came from. Do you realize that he's setting up Hebrews 11, which we call the hall of faith? He's setting it up by saying, I'm about to tell you who you're of. I'm about to introduce you to your tribe. I'm about to introduce you to your family reunion. They're a great bunch of people. These kind of people you want to be related to. This, these are your people. This is your tribe. We are not of those that shrink back. That's not what you're made of. You see, if I tell you you're prone to shrinking back, you're prone to shrinking back. In fact, one of my favorite hymns, I skipped the verse that says, you know, I love this, come thou fount of every blessing. Beautiful song. Here I raise my Ebenezer. And it's even better when you finally figure out what an Ebenezer is. <laughs> but he says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And I understand that because he's saying we're human. But I've got to identify more with who I am in Christ than who I was in the flesh. I know in my flesh there is a tendency to wander. I know in my flesh there would be a tendency to quit. But I do not live by the flesh anymore. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I live by the Spirit now. So I am no longer prone to wander. He says we are not of those that shrink back. That's not who you are anymore. See, if you think you're a shrinker, if you think you're a coward, if you think you're one who's prone to run, you are going to take that option. He says, that's not who you are anymore. You're not of those that shrink back. You are those of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, faith is, and just remember for a moment that this book was not written with chapters or verses. This is one letter. So the next thought is this, now faith, in fact, now is the connecting word. We're not done when he says we have faith. Because maybe you say, what is faith? He says, we're of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. He just told you what's going to save your life. He just told you what's going to preserve your soul. And why does your soul need to be preserved? Your soul is your mind, your will, your emotions. Why does that need to be preserved? Because that's the one thing that feels like running. That's the one thing that starts to be filled with doubts and fears and second guessing. That's what it feels like when you're driving to so-and-so's farm and you think you missed the turn and you start to question. And as much as you feel it on the way to their farm, you feel it so much more when you're trying to figure out what to do with your life. You know you took that job because you thought God told you to take that job. But it's not panning out like I thought it was going to pan out. Maybe I missed it. Maybe you did. But if you knew then that you were hearing from God and God has confirmed it just because you haven't seen another sign yet doesn't mean you're on the wrong road. Sometimes faith means saying, I still am going by the last thing I heard. Now, listen, there are people that spend zero time with the Lord, take zero time to pray, have their ears closed to what he would say. To that person, I would not say, what's the last thing God told you? Because they've not been listening. The last thing God told them might have been, get saved. But to you, you don't have to be a super Christian, super preacher, super minister to hear from God and to know his will for your life. 
The one qualification you have to have is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is a promise for every believer. He says through his spirit, 1 Corinthians 2, you can go read it later. 1 Corinthians 2, he says very clearly that the things he has planned for you, that no eye has seen or ear has heard is entered into the heart of man. All the things he's prepared for you, his spirit has that information and is revealing it to you so that you may know the things freely given to you by God. So by having the Holy Spirit, that you've got to listen to the Holy Spirit. But if your ears are open and you're in his word and you're spending time with him daily, then I can say to you, even if you didn't get a new, sometimes not getting a new direction means stay on the path and endure and trust the last thing you heard. I hated taking my driver's exam. Hated it. The guy giving it to me was not giving me any breaks. He, he was not fond of the fact that I called him sir. He was, he was offended by it. He said, don't call me sir. You wouldn't call me sir on the street. I was like, actually, I would. You know, that's what my parents told me to do. <laughs> but it's a stupid idea to argue with driver's instructors and customs officers. Those two you'd never argue with. Or the police officer that pulled you aside. Just say, yeah, okay, fine. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Don't call me sir. I mean, yes, dude. (laughs) But the worst part, the worst part was not when he was telling you to do something. Hey, I could parallel park just fine. Change lanes just fine. The worst part is your little 16-year-old holding the steering wheel, hoping you're doing right, and he's not telling you anything. And every turn, you start to flinch like, eh, eh, eh. He goes, did I tell you to turn right? No, no, you didn't. <laughs> a couple times I said, do, do, you want, do, do you want me to turn here? He says, did I say turn here? No, 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 you didn't. No, you didn't. Just looking for some advance warning. It just makes you so nervous. It's way easier hearing directions every turn than just saying, until I tell you again, keep doing what you're doing. We would love for the Lord to say, okay, you passed another intersection. That's cool. You're going to pass another one. You're going to pass another one. There'll be three stop signs. But a lot of times, he says, keep doing what I told you to do and trust that I'm preparing the path before you. Every now and then, it's okay to say, God, am I still on the right path? But ask the question in faith, not full of doubt, because you don't see what you think you should have seen. And he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Another translation says the evidence, the evidence. The conviction means that there's, some of you flinch up when you hear conviction, you know. Maybe your your, your background has, has got a few convictions. That wasn't a good word. But conviction in this sense is a good word. It means there's no doubt. There's no doubt the conviction of things not seen means you are fully convinced. He says, faith is the assurance of things. Hope for the conviction of things, what? Not seen. When do we usually finally believe something is real? When we can see it. But faith is convinced it's real when you don't see it. And that's what it's made up of. It says, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things, was not made out of things which are visible. What's he saying? Everything began with something that was unseen. And everything you can see started with being unseen. And he's setting the stage to let you know what you see is not the beginning. It's what you don't see that that causes everything seen to come into being. Look at what he says. He says, for by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. I already read this, but I'll read it again. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up that he was pleasing to God. 
Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe, first of all, that he is, and that he's a reward of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, and reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Think about that guy. Think about all the years between the first nail going in to the last nail going in, how many years it took to build that giant ship. And how many years building with no rain. Rain didn't come until all the animals were in their ark. Rain didn't come until the thing was built. You think of how many years you've got to endure ridicule? How many years you've got to feel crazy? How many years maybe God's not telling you again, okay, Keep building the ark. How many years you just got to believe? He told me to build it. We're going to build it. In year one, it's easy. Try year five, and you're still building. I don't know how many years you're into it now, but Noah believed. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Because if he knew, it wouldn't be faith, would it? It would be sight. It says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and a new as the sand which is by the seashore. There was a German theologian named Karl Barth in the middle of the 20th, well, early to middle 20th century. He said, you want to know why I believe there's a God? He said, look at the Jewish people. They're still here. Somebody said, well, why is that so amazing? He said, you ever seen a Hittite in New York City? See any Assyrians walking around? And the Jewish people, at every turn, somebody's tried to wipe them out. And they're still here. God still has honored that covenant he made with one man who was inches from extinction in a land nobody cared about. God honored that covenant and is still honoring that covenant. Isn't that amazing? Verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. Wait a minute. You say, hang on. Didn't they receive the promises? They did, but they were bigger promises that we're walking in right now that they didn't even see. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He looked ahead and saw when Jesus, that, 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 that man who was coming through his own line, he saw that and he rejoiced, even though in his own lifetime he wasn't going to see it. It was enough. That he knew he'd be a part of it. Maybe not in this life, but I will be a part of this. It says, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. I love that. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Of course, it goes on, doesn't it? And we could take all the time to read that, but I'd like you to read that on your own and be encouraged. But I want you to see the common theme is that there, there's things that they're not seeing that they see with the eyes of faith. And that causes them to endure. That causes them to keep going. And what you've got to know today is that by faith, there are things you've got to consider more real than what you see and what the doctor told you and than, than, than what your family's told you and than what your employer's told you. You've got to see what God has said and, and it's see it, not just, not just think it, but see it as real. As more real than what you can't see. And how does that happen? I I go back to the beginning of chapter 10 when he says, if we need help, 
We've got a high priest who knows our weaknesses. Do you know that your weaknesses are not a problem for God? And he's not surprised by them. And we get halfway through what we're dealing with, and we think, oh, why did God pick me? I bet if he knew this, he wouldn't have picked me. But of course, he did know that. He picked you when he knew all of your weaknesses. He says he's not unaware of your weaknesses. He's not unsympathetic to your weakness. But here's what he says. When you're weak, when you're having trouble, when you're tempted to give up, you draw near to me. Here's the reality. Is that the further I get from the Lord, and the less and less time I spend with him because I'm so busy, sometimes even doing, busy doing his stuff. Because I think that somehow that's a badge of honor in the Christian world to be busy doing the works of God. But it's not if you're not spending time with God. And it's impossible because you'll get burnt out. You'll, you'll want to quit. But here's the deal. When it seems to get fainter and fainter, And you're saying, I'm not seeing it. I'm having trouble believing it like I used to believe it. Draw near to God. He's not unfamiliar or unsympathetic with your weaknesses. He was aware of those weaknesses when he picked you. In fact, he may have picked you because you were a bit flawed so that he could show how he could take a flawed person and make them something. He did pick a guy who was almost extinct. He did pick a woman who had almost starved to death. He did pick a, pick a man named Gideon who's hiding in a cave because he's the most cowardly of his whole family and his family's the weakest in all the land. He did tend to pick the people nobody else would have picked. He picked David when, his own, when David's own dad wouldn't have picked him. Boy, you know you're batting pretty low when your own dad doesn't want to pick you. Like when they're picking teams for baseball and your dad looks at you and looks at the neighbor kid and picks the neighbor kid, that's a bad thing. (laughs) Or when he's picked everybody else and he still sees you and goes, I guess we all picked. (laughs) There's another guy. Oh, David. God picks those people on purpose. And he's picked you. And I want to encourage you today that just because... You haven't seen an angel, you know, with a a neon light sign standing in the middle of the highway, flipping other cars over and telling you you're on the right path doesn't mean you're on the wrong one. You have need of endurance that after doing the will of God, you may receive what has been promised. And if you need that endurance, ask for it. Come near and say, God, I'm feeling real weak right now. I don't see what I saw when you told me. I'm starting, my, my eyesight's getting weak. And he says, no, let me show you. And I love the story of Elisha. When he's in that city that's surrounded by a whole army, a whole army sent to capture one old man. And he's surrounded by this army. And his servants freaking out. I mean, that was just like the worst job in the Old Testament was to be the servant of the prophet. It was like always the worst. You just always got the flack. You were picking up stuff you shouldn't have to pick up. You're dealing with them when they're in a bad mood, you know. And, and nobody's saying, boy, I'm glad you're here. They're just always glad your, your prophet guy's here. But, you know, the upside is you might be like Elisha and you get twice of what Elijah had. So, you know, it's worth hanging in there. But Elisha's servant's freaking out because why did I sign up for this job? What I was doing before was way less dangerous. Now they're not going to say, we'll take the old man, we'll leave you. No, they're going to take me with them. So he's freaking out. He's panicking. And Elisha says, what are you worried about? There's more for us than there are against us. He goes, he goes, old man, you're crazy. There's nobody there for us. It seems like everybody's against us. And Elisha prays to the Lord and he says, Lord, open his eyes. And when he opens his eyes, he sees the army of heaven surrounding. One of, those, one of those angels could have taken out the whole army. But God is a God of abundance. Some might say overkill. He sends a whole army. He does a little shock and awe. <laughs> Here's the one thing I don't see. I don't see Elisha praying that he would see what his servant saw. Now, maybe he did. Maybe he had an idea of it. Maybe, he, maybe God showed him. But you know what? I, I tend to believe that Elisha had enough experience with God that he knew they were there. It was his servant that needed to see something. But Elisha's faith was enough sight for him. 
Elisha saw it by faith. His servant had to see it with his natural eyes, but Elisha knew it was there. Do you think Elisha just walked around seeing angels everywhere he went? Probably not. Elisha knew they were there because he knew his God. Help my servant out, he's weak. Show him something. Just like Jesus who had to say to his disciples, okay, I'll speak plainly. But really, Jesus said, when he did allow Thomas to touch his hands and put his fingers through the holes, he said, I'm glad you believe, but blessed are they who believed when they haven't seen. Your faith is more real. Your faith in the unseen is more real than what you see with your eyes. And I've said all this today, as we wrap this up, I've said all this today to encourage you who have been standing for a while to know that 25 years of believing something for Ab- in Abram's case, in Abraham's case, 25 years of believing only caused him to get stronger. And I know year 13, year 14, you want to start saying, did I t- make a wrong turn? And that's exactly what Abram did. Year 10, he, made that qu- he asked that question. Did I make a wrong turn? And he went and he took a a U-turn and he had Ishmael and he didn't have to. But God gave him a second chance. God called his cell phone and said, get back on the road. Like we said last week, Abraham prayed to God. He said, oh, that you would let Ishmael stand before you. And how many times have we done that? How many times have we said, God, I know I panicked. And I made this decision. I got this job. We bought this thing. We moved here. Can you just make it work? And God says, no, I got something better for you. Now, your life is not going to totally fall apart because you made the mistake. I can fix it, but you need to get back on the road. (laughs) Thank God for that. The worst decisions you ever make in your life are in panic mode. The worst moves you ever make are when you're starting to panic. The worst jobs you ever take are when you're starting to panic. The worst people you ever could marry are when you're starting to panic that you're going to be single forever. Can I tell you, the only decisions you need to be making are in a place of rest and peace in Jesus. Now, it may be a time where there's stress all around you, but when you know, okay, hang on, this is not affecting my decision. Stop panicking. Can, can that just be the word for today? Quit panicking. If it's year 10. No. Some things are going to happen just right away. Some things are going to happen in 30 seconds. But there are some things that require you to have faith and patience. And those things, I believe, are going to be some of the greatest miracles in your life. And remember that the last kilometer is the hardest. So when you're feeling the most like giving up, you are the closest you could possibly be to the end of your journey. And I don't mean the end of the journey as in you're going to die. I mean the end of the journey as in the reward's right in front of you. How many of us give up when the finish line's just around the corner? You need to quit, 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 quit panicking. Quit saying, why is it taking this long? Quit saying, maybe I made a wrong turn. Seek the Lord. And he says, draw near to me. I know your weaknesses. When you're tempted. Now, I know temptation. There's a lot of things we're tempted with, right? But if you read the whole book of Hebrews, the big temptation was to fall away and to go back to the old school way of thinking because you, you could get along with your culture better. I mean, constantly he's having to say, get off the fence, choose Jesus. So I really think the number one temptation for them is to say, you know what? Let's just compromise. Let's go back. Let's, give, let's, let's not be so hardcore, uh, this new covenant stuff. Let's go back and do the old things again. He says, whenever you're tempted to give up, you're drawn near to God. And he will have grace and mercy to help you in a time of need that awesome? Of course, we know that the scripture says, draw near, let us draw near with confidence. And that word confidence in the Greek language does not simply mean with your head up, with your chest out. The word confidence is made of two words, to speak freely, to speak boldly. 
That means when you come into the throne of God, there will be a time of sitting, there will be time of listening, but there's going to be a point where you need to ask for what you need. Lord, I need endurance. Lord, I need wisdom. Lord, I need to know that I'm on the right path. And he'll give it to you. Oh, man, I know. <laughs> it's probably a good, August long weekend's probably a good time to preach this, isn't it? This is something we all need. Because I know that there are so many of you that are just right on the edge of some major stuff. But the point of breakthrough that's always the hardest pushing is right before you break through. It's not the run-up. You know when you're running up to break through something? That run, there's nothing, there's nothing against you. There's nothing hindering you. When you're running, it feels good. When, it, when you're really feeling the pressure is when you hit the wall right before you break through the wall. And many of you are right at that point. You're pushing and you're pushing and you're pushing. And I want to be the one voice that's, that runs beside you. I want you to be the voice for each other that will run, run beside one another. It's not a coincidence that in, just right, right near where we read, it says you need to meet together more often and encourage one another even more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. Why even more? Because the closer we get to the day of the Lord, the more the temptation to give up. But the closer we get to the day of the Lord, I don't mean to be redundant, but we are closer to our reward. You're this close, guys. Stop. Stop panicking. Stop worrying that you've missed the turn. Can you just trust God? Can you believe him? Can you rejoice and give glory to God? Amen. Thank God. Don't wait to rejoice over the check that he's already written. Don't wait until you get to the bank and see if it clears. The check came from him. He's good for it. When he makes a promise, he follows through. Amen? Stand up with me. We're going to do something a little different today. Is that, is that all right with you? I mean, no matter what you said, I was going to do it anyways. You know, I just want to be sweet. I want us just to, uh, I know this sounds simple, but I want us just to sing together if we could. And some of you, I want to welcome you to the front if that's what you want to do. If you want to stay at your seat and worship God from there, then I encourage you to do it. But if you have been fighting and fighting and you're feeling the urge to panic and to make a different choice, make a different decision, if you're feeling the pressure to turn a different direction, now maybe you did turn the wrong way. Maybe the Ishmael was the last decision you made and you need to get back on the road. I'm not here to tell you never question your decisions. <laughs> some, some people need to question their decisions. What I am here to say is the, what's the last thing you knew you heard from God? What's the last thing you know he said? Now ask him if that's where you're still supposed to be. But don't give up just because you haven't heard a new thing yet. Or just because you, you don't seem to be seeing what you thought you'd see. Some of you I know have been standing in faith and you've been trusting God. I believe you're this close. But if you want that strength and you're asking for it, we're going to pray that, that your faith becomes stronger so that you can see with the eyes of your heart more than you can see with the eyes on the front of your head, that it'll be real to you. The Lord would open your eyes, not just your physical eyes, but the eyes of your spirit, and you'd be enlightened to know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his inheritance in you, the saints? Amen? Praise God. We're just going to sing a very simple song that um, some of us grew up singing.